Hello, everybody. My name is Alex Marks, and this is Young History. Episode 20 on Kiribati. K-I-R-I-B-A-T-I spells Kiribati. We'll get into why that is it is later, but it is Kiribati, not Kiribati, because Kiribati translates to Gilbert, which is the name where this island used to be. These group of islands was the Gilbert Islands. The capital is Tarawa, which is also where half of the population of the entire country lives, despite them stretching hundreds of miles across Polynesia and Micronesia. They mostly live on this one Tarawa Atoll, and it's one island and 32 atolls. There's one big island, and even the capital is in Tarawa, which is an atoll. And it's got some cool facts about it, one of them being that, you know, it's it's very unique for the fact that it actually is the only country in the world that cut, that fully touches four hemispheres. And the reason it does that is because it's kind of on the international dateline as well as the equator. And it really just, it touches everywhere. So there's a lot of issues with time zones and stuff. We're going to talk about that later. And it's very interesting. So they speak Gilbertese here as well as English. Um, the Gilbertese is a cousin of Polynesian, but it's not like Palawan. It's very different. But it's also related to um, Marshallese, which is also part of Micronesia. And then the English comes from the fact that they were colonized by the English, as well as have had a lot of affiliation with the United States. And they both include, this grouping of Kiribati includes the Phoenix Islands, as well as the Western, line, the Eastern, I'm sorry, Line Islands. And it, from the Line Islands all the way over to the Caroline Islands, which all came together to be the Gilbert Islands and now Kiribati, they are hundreds of miles apart. So this ocean range is very wide. And... You know, this was supposed to be the intro, but I kind of got a little carried away. So we're just going to roll with it. And I'm just going to say thank you so much for being here. I'm glad you guys are excited. I hope you're excited as me to see another Oceanic episode. We were in the Caribbean for a while there, bounced around that area. And now we get to do another one of my favorites, which is, you know, Oceania. And I love Micronesia. I've fallen in love with it over the last year or so. So definitely love it. So thank you so much for being here. And I'm going to say once again, my name is Alex Marks. This is Young History, and this is episode 20 on Kiribati. So our origins begin around 3000 BC when the first people to inhabit the island come, and they are actually Austronesians. They're called this because... They're very similar breakdown to what the Aboriginal people are in Australia today and the true indigenous people of Australia. They likely came down from Taiwan and went through the island chain of Malaysia, Indonesia, worked their way down through Papua New Guinea and now into Australia. From there, they moved out into the Oceanic Islands. We saw people like this inhabit Palau and they've inhabited other parts of Micronesia. So it's believed that these people are also the same ones that ended up in Kiribati. That was in 3000 BC. The next major change would be after many years of these people just traveling these islands, growing population, living the way they lived. There is the immigration of Polynesians, and those would be the Samoans and the Tongans. This would happen around the 1200s in the Common Era, so 1200 CE. And of course, fighting broke out between the Austronesians and the Oceanic people, and then even between the Tongans and the Samoans, they also began to fight each other. It's just what humans do. Like We're just very prone to fighting, no matter if we agreed at one point. If we're on the same land and there's not 
other things to focus on, we're going to fight each other. It's just in our nature. Man wants to conquer. Man wants power. All those things. And I think that's unique about these is on these islands, the Austronesian, like the, the true original culture here, actually used very special kind of fighting styles. They were very like mixed martial arts and like warrior focused culture, which is kind of similar to what you see with the island Caribs in the Caribbean. We've talked about how they were the most aggressive like warrior tribe of the Caribbean. And when you come to over here, it's very similar. They're very mixed martial arts focused and they use very unique weapons and armor. They used to have tridents that were made out of barbed, made out of bones, but they were barbed with shark teeth. And then they also wore helmets made of pufferfish carcasses that were blown up and they were like solidified to be like a helmet and very very interesting and despite all this they were able to maintain a gerontocratic government for a long time and what that means is that the power resides in age so the older a person is the more power and respect they have within the government and it's you know these areas of the world are famous for respecting your elders and raising their children to be that way so this makes a lot of sense and this is actually built in their government for a very long time it wouldn't be until 1601 that they're actually discovered by the europeans this would be pedro fernandez de Cuerras, who was sailing under the spanish flag and was trying to map out a lot of islands in the area he was a famous explorer and he's the first European to spot one of the islands that became Kiribati. The next big one would be John Byron, who would spot it another part of the islands and then spot the same one that Pedro spotted, which was in 1764. The reason there was nothing happening was because they kind of just saw the natives and just looked around the land. And if you look and just see all these atolls, there's no, you know, there's not a lot to gain out of colonizing them at this stage. They didn't have any need to station troops or anything in the Pacific. They didn't have anything to harvest there. They didn't need any of the indigenous fruit or anything. So they moved on both in 1601 and in 1764. But it's over the next 30 years or so that there begins to be some history that still correlates till today. That would be when Thomas Gilbert and Thomas Mar and John Marshall, both British explorers, arrive into these islands and they start to discover different parts. So Thomas Gilbert is the one one of the two people on this ship that was sailing around the Pacific, and with him was John Marshall. They were both captains of sorts, and they really started to see different lands. And because of this, it's seen as Thomas Gilbert is the one who discovers most of Kiribati, and then John Marshall is the one who discovered the area more in the western part of Micronesia, which is, ends up being the Marshall Islands. So John Marshall ends up being the one named for the Marshall Islands. And then Thomas Gilbert ends up being named, he, he, the islands are named for him, the Gilbert Islands. So, like I said, in 1820, these islands become the Gilbert Islands. After this discovery and mapping was done by Gilbert and Marshall in 1788, the same man that named the Marshall Islands, the Marshall Islands in honor of John Marshall, named the Gilbert Islands after Thomas Gilbert. This was Adam Johann von Krustenstern. He was a Russian explorer sailing around 1820, and... It didn't take long for his naming of the islands and discovery and more exploration discovery lead to more explorers coming. And that's when Louis Dupree comes in 1824. And he's actually the first to map out all of Kiribati, or at least what is Kiribati today, which includes Line Islands, Phoenix Islands, Caroline Islands, all that. So between the European world, the old world, as they would say, and the new world in Oceania. Whalers and merchants became more and more popular and started coming to the island more and more in the late 19th century. They brought a lot of foreign goods to the people of Kiribati and they also brought 
another horrible th- uh, other things which are horrible which would be the european diseases which of course crushed the population as well and they really started to push more and more into native lands which made them less friendly and gave them an excuse to start killing people and really try to you know cement their hold on these islands in 1892 after these frequent visits by people like Louis Dupree, John Marshall, Thomas Gilbert over the last hundred years, and these new merchants and whalers. The British actually incorporate them into their empire of sorts. They make them a protectorate, and they unite them with the Ellis Islands. The Ellis Islands actually end up becoming Tuvalu. And with the Ellis Islands, they're also united with uh, Tokelau, and they're put into this big conglomeration, and they're all ruled by the British, the Federation of Sorts, which is just called the Ellis Islands for now. And then... That lasts from 1892 until 1916 when the name is changed and a few more islands are added where it's called the Gilbert and Ellis Island Colony. That's as of 1916. And with this, that's when European culture really starts to take root. English starts to be taught as a major language and there's more assimilation forced upon them, things like that. Just like we saw with Nauru, there's actually a really major thing that happens here with the phosphate rock is the British discover it in the early 1900s as they're kind of shifting into that 1916 island colony thing. They're really starting to study the area and they see that a lot of the rock is made of phosphate and they begin mining and drilling very quickly. So by the 1930s, the drilling was insane and a lot of the handling of it was handed over to the to the Pacific Phosphate Company and from there on it would just get to a point where they would begin to start stripping down. They're strip mining to the point where it's depleting the land and it makes it hard to grow crops in the land. It really causes a lot of issues in Kiribati. Now that's around the 1930s. They didn't see much action during World War I because Germany and Japan were having issues battling over places like the Marshall Islands, Palau, other ones. So only a few islands of Kiribati were involved with anything in World War I. World War II in the 1939 to 1945 era would be different. Now, they saw, the, this time saw the Gilbert Islands conquered by Japan and a lot of fighting during World War II because America, the United States of America, was doing its island hopping campaign where just week after week, month after month, there were these brutal, brutal, brutal battles on all these oceanic islands and they would last either days or months and they would go on and they were after Germany had already been f- defeated. So the war had already been going on and this was the bigger passion fight for America after Pearl Harbor. So a lot of crazy battles happen here. One of the big ones actually do happen on the modern-day capital, which is Tarawa. So it's the Battle of Tarawa in 1943. It was one of the most brutal fights in all of the Pacific outside of Iwo Jima and some of the other famous ones. And the U.S. ends up freeing Kiribati from Japanese rule because the Japanese Empire took them over in the beginning of World War II. And for the next few decades, the U.S. would kind of preside over the land and have their control. Now, there was a lot of nuclear testing that also happened here in the Gilbert Islands, just like happened in the Marshall Islands. It wasn't as serious because the Marshall Islands were like the official, they were the official designated spot for nuclear, nuclear testing to go on. So when this happened, it was, news was already kind of coming over from the Marshall Islands that this was happening. So the people were very quick to kind of stand up against it. This was happening mostly on, this is, so here's an issue with this. This is called, it's spelled Kritimati, just like Kiribati is spelled Kiribati, but T-I in their language is S. There is no S in their alphabet, so they use T-I for that sound. So this is called Christmas Island, which if you look at the spelling, it's K-I-R-I-T-I-M-A-T-I, which is like Christmas. So 
it's Christmas Island. And it's also like Christmas is the name, even though it's a double T-I. So on Christmas Island, there was a lot of New Year testing between the U.S. and the U.K. And very quickly, the global stage starts to disagree with this. And right after that, the Gilbertese really start to stand up to this as well. After the U.S. had, you know, kind of presided over them for a while, they were still officially under the British, so that was who they would have to, you know, ask for changes from because the U.S. just provided what kind of was presiding over them on a military or a military and international level in case anything were to happen with Japan. Kind of just that post-World War II anxiousness and anxiety that was spreading. So in 1967, after a lot of push and change and pride was building within these people, they are wanting more and more autonomy over their tiny little country. And... That happens across all the islands, the Phoenix, the Line, and the Caroline. They all want that for sure. So in 1967, they get their own self-rule internally, and that saw the introduction of a House of Representatives coming to power. They would be elected every year, things like that. And that's when they start getting more support and influence, and that's when they start the phosphate lawsuit, which is when the government of the Gilbert Islands ends up suing the British Empire to pay some of the money back as reparations because of the way them mining in the phosphate industry, destroyed a lot of the native lands. Now, the court case ends up going stale, and it doesn't work very well, and Britain doesn't have to comply right away. But international community puts a lot of pressure on Britain for what they did, so they end up paying a one-time payment of $10 million Australian dollars to the island, which is a solid amount for a country that is this small in population, and it's not a rich country, and very much depends on aid. But it still is, you know... It's, it's rough to hear that because they made so much money off of this industry just for the people that suffered for the existence of this industry to kind of get a, like a little chunk of change tossed in their hand and then sent away. So it's not great to hear, but it's what happened. So following this, Ellis Island would start to break up this kind of union of the two. In 1977, the Ellis Islands wanted more and more authority and they had this like idea of independence and that was really surging. And they end up breaking away from the union with the Gilbert Islands, and they become independent not long after, becoming Tuvalu. And then independence for the Gilbert Islands ends up coming from 1979. They break away from the UK officially. They're not a commonwealth. They don't recognize the crown or anything like that. They just go, okay, we're done. And they also break away from any association with the US. They have good relations. There's still trade between them. Travel is like pretty unrestricted between the two as long as there's passports and stuff involved. So they're Completely good, situation-wise. But they get full independence, and they're done. And that's when they come up with the name Kiribati, which is a native Austronesian in Gilbertese word for Gilbert or Gilberts, which is just paying back homage to it being called Gilbert Islands and Thomas Gilbert for discovering it. So even though it's Kiribati, it's still technically the Gilbert Islands, and it's called Gilbert in English. Like it would Kiribati translate to Gilbert in English. And four years after this was established with the Gilbert Islands, specifically the Gilbert and Caroline Islands, the Phoenix Islands, which are more like center between the Line Islands and the Caroline Islands, which make up all of Kiribati, they end up getting released by the U.S. and they like join into Kiribati. And the Line Islands do the same not long after. So there's the Line Islands in the east, the Caroline Islands in the west, and the Phoenix Islands in in the kind of center of the two. And that becomes full Kiribati that we know today. There has actually been issues with overcrowding within the country. It happened on the main atoll, Tarawa, which is where half the population lived. And it actually forced 5,000 people 
to move to other islands within Kiribati so that they could maintain quality of life because it was getting so packed that you couldn't even, you know, you couldn't move, traffic was bad, and there was, things were busy, hospitals were busy, things like that, and it was making it very hard for the country. So they forced a lot of people to move to different parts of Kiribati away from the Tarawa Atoll, which is the capital. Now, when it comes to classification and what follows with that, there is a lot of confusion. So one-third of Kiribati is in Micronesia. The other two-thirds, which is the more eastern half in the center, which would be the Caroline, I'm sorry, the Phoenix and the Line Islands, those are both Polynesian, and the western half, which is the Caroline Islands, which is where the Tarawa Atoll is, is in Micronesia. So because of that, it loops and hits those four, it hits like all four hemispheres because of the equator and the international dateline. And because of this, they've had to do a bunch of adjusting between the different islands within the country, where the line islands are like many hours ahead of the Caroline Islands, and then in the middle of the Phoenix Islands are still have a weird forward from the Line Islands back from the Phoenix, from the Caroline Islands. It's very, very, very unique. But a thing that's kind of cool with it is there is a time period because of how far apart their gaps are in time for each day. If you were to around, I believe it's from six like twenty-eight a.m. until like eight twenty-eight a.m. Those time periods is a time where it's becoming a new day. It's just past a new day for the Line Islands. It's the middle of the day for the Phoenix Islands. And the Caroline Islands haven't even hit that day yet because of the distance and the time zone setup. So technically, you could, if you like, you had three friends in Kiribati, you could technically be in three separate days while like just being like in that one country, which is, it's insane. Now, a lot of the islands within Kiribati are definitely not as inhabited as some of the other oceanic countries where they have, you know, very like a little population on each island. A couple of the out of the thirty two atolls in the one big island, there isn't a lot of them that are actually populated. So each of the ones that have a population do have a representative that goes and represents them when all of Kiribati means up to make decisions. And one of those big things they need to make decisions on is the giant issue that's facing them and all other low lying oceanic countries. And that is sea level rising. Now, it's a huge issue issue rising in Kiribati, and it's because if the sea levels don't stop, the land is going to be in a huge amount of trouble. So the highest point in all of Kiribati is, I believe, six meters above sea level, and it's literally right next to a beach. So the highest point in the whole country, you can look and see a beach 20 meters away from you. So that's very scary because as sea levels rise, this country doesn't have much it can do to protect itself. And water has washed over different parts of the country, and some of the areas are shrinking, and it's getting smaller and smaller. And it could do that to the entire country within the generation, which would mean that everyone living on Kiribati would have to relocate to other parts of the world. Now, there are efforts being made to help the island survive this. One of the bigger ones being that they're growing mangroves to kind of have like artificial islands and act as... You know how there's those oil rig things that are built in the middle of the ocean and people work on them to harvest oil from the ocean? They kind of want to build something like that by growing it with mangroves and make like an artificial island to live on. They're trying that. And then, of course, they're very much advocates for any laws that push towards limiting carbon emissions and things like that. But despite this, it is a very pressing issue, and it's, it's still hitting them to this day, as we'll soon see. Now, when it comes to a big holiday on July 12th, it's actually their National Independence Day where they do a famous thing called their stick dance and they also do their other traditional dances which kind of involve moving and pecking like a bird. That's like one of the ways that it's been described. So they do these two dances on their National Independence Day to celebrate it every year. 
and there's been international influence from both China and Japan. Japan built a space station in, on one of the islands, and China also did the same, but they were having good relations for a time until Kiribati actually wanted to recognize Taiwan and create a relation, relationship with them. And then, of course, that meant China said, okay, it's us or them, and they ended up picking Taiwan, so relations are all cut off between China and Kiribati. It doesn't happen here in Kiribati much, but I've been yet to mention it, and we don't have a lot of these oceanic countries left. We do have a few, but I'm going to mention it briefly now, is there is a really big discrimination between Micronesians and Polynesians, especially in Hawaii, and that is because the Polynesians see the Micronesians as below them. They kind of call them poor and uneducated and dumb. The reason for that is a lot of Micronesia doesn't have colleges, nor does it have great working opportunities or any technical colleges. Or It's very hard to build skill and be educated, which, of course, in a U.S. state, which is the biggest economy in the world, all things you say about the U.S., there's colleges. The University of Hawaii is a destination for students to study abroad. It's got a million programs. And that's only one of the universities there. On all of the islands, Oahu, Hawaii itself, Maui, they all have colleges and they all have opportunities there, things like that. This is not as common within Micronesia, any of them, not even just the Federated States, but all of the Micronesian islands. So when Micronesians move over to Hawaii especially and other parts of Polynesia that are well-developed, there's a lot of hatred and there's a lot of discrimination. People tweet out very gross things and it's bad. So it's it's one thing I'm going to acknowledge now. I'm going to bring it up a lot in eventually when we do Hawaii in, in tandem with the U.S. And I'm going to bring it up when we do Samoa specifically, which is going to be soon, and the Solomon Islands. We're going to hit all of that and we're going to see you know, just how deep it goes. One thing that is unique about the country and is only seen in different parts of Oceania more than anything else is there's a lot of ships and planes as well as tanks that are left over here from World War II because of the island hopping campaign and all the things that were going on during World War II. A lot of the fighting that happened resulted in you know a battle ending, usually the U.S. being victorious, and things would be left. It was Japanese war weapons that were crushed. They would be left alone. You know, ships that were sunk, planes that were shot down. You could find them in these oceans around Kiribati, and it's very unique. And you could see that when you tour. It's a thing they've made tours out of is when you're walking on different parts of Kiribati, especially the Tarawa Atoll, you could see where a lot of these war remnants are and things like that. And with that, that pretty much catches, up, up, catches us up to now, which is interesting. So they aren't in a great place. Of course, they're dealing with this ocean rising things, and they're threatened by sea level rise and could be submerged in a few years' time. By the end of the century, 2100, they fully believe Kiribati is going to be underwater. And there's efforts, of course, as I said, to fight this, but there's also efforts being put in place to survive it if it does happen, and that's that New Zealand and Fiji are both offering to accommodate Kiribati citizens if they need relocation. And a big part of that is the fact that Kiribati is very financially dependent on New Zealand. They get aid from them, and if they didn't get aid, they wouldn't be able to sustain their country or anything about themselves. So it's definitely a hard situation, but the Kiribati are strong. They're very warm people. They're very proud of their culture, and they're trying their best to get this done and you know they need help from the international community they need help from their people within and they need help from anyone they can including themselves so it's a very grim situation over there when this problem is rising and people have made claims that oh well if you look at the stats like the islands aren't actually shrinking it's it's putting too much numbers to thing it's like when people try and 
you know, a very big like social issue. They're like, well, the stats show this. It's like, yeah, well, the stats are just stats. They don't show like what is, they don't show directly what's going on or what like, stats don't have a because or a why. They just have this. This is this number. So there's been arguments made that, oh, Kiribati isn't really shrinking. They're not really facing that much. Like, they are. They are. They're dealing with sea level rise. And if you give it 50 years, they're, they're not going to be there. So it's gross to see people deny it. And it's a big issue they're facing right now. While they're trying to get help, they have also had to fight deniers of global warming existing. So it's very ridiculous. But with that, we pretty much get to the end. And I'm going to do what I always do and try and leave it how I always try and leave it, which is with a good mindset and kind of a good note goodbye. Kind of like a lesson to take away from this country and their history. And with this, it is... It is to dig deep and try and find a solution to whatever your problem is. This is very much correlated to what they're dealing with now. And it correlates to the fact that they've been colonized and dealt with so much for so long. In both those situations, even when the solution is not clear, they have found a way to push through and fight and go forward. These Gilbertese, these Kiribatians, these people, they have tried very hard no matter what their situation is, to try and get through whatever is being thrown at them. No matter if that problem is global warming or if it is British racist, whatever it is, they've tried to get through it and they've fought hard. And the way you do that is by continuing to look within yourself and around you to solve your problem. A solution will come. It's either going to come from looking within or, you know, maybe you're just thinking of something you never thought of, or maybe it's simple and it's right in front of you. But it can also be from very, very hard and rigorous work. And that is something you have to accept is that no matter what the situation is, no matter what's going on, there is going to be a solution to what you're dealing with. And the more that you look and try and find that solution to whatever problem you may have, maybe it's not the same as the people of Kiribati where it's a global thing is trying to is going to affect you know your life and your livelihood and everything. Maybe it's just the way you view something. Maybe it's a mental health issue. Whatever it is, there is a solution. And that solution can be anything. You just need to find it. And if it's not apparent right now, just keep looking, keep digging, and keep trying to find your way out because one day it will reveal itself and you're going to be very glad you did. It took a very long time for Kiribati to get independence. That didn't happen overnight. That didn't happen over a few years. It took centuries for them to rally up the pride and the support to become independent and with that you really need to you really need to understand there is going to be a solution one way or another and if you continue to look for it you are going to find it so i'm just going to leave it with that and say thank you all so much for being here this was a unique one this was very fun the shapes and the history and like the culture behind these islands is amazing and the fact it's spread so far all that is very unique and it's an incredible one. So honestly, just hope you guys enjoyed and I hope this was entertaining or I hope it was interesting or I hope the mindset at the end helped you, whichever one it was, hope it was one of them. And if you're just here to be here, I very much appreciate you too. So I'm just going to say one more time, my name is Alex Marks. This is Young History and that was Kiribati. Thank you so much and you have a good one.